Thank you for finding the Motel Americana podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please consider helping it to continue running by clicking the support link at motelamericanapodcast.com, by finding us directly on Patreon, or simply by rating it on your favorite podcast platform. If you're already familiar with this podcast, you'll know that the author is one Oscar Garrett, a kid who lived at the Motel Americana in the 80s and who bugged the rooms. The illicitly gotten audio surveillance footage that Oscar captured in the motel clearly served as the source material for these pseudo-fictional short stories. Wherever possible, I, your humble narrator Jack Same, have and will continue to intercut the actual surveillance audio that Oscar's bugs captured into the narrative of his tales as I relay them to you. It should be noted here by way of disclaimer that this accounts for the sometimes spotty quality of the audio dialogue, but I feel that the immediacy the field recordings lend these presentations far outweighs the detrimental byproducts of them. For those who are interested or too distracted by the field recording quality, you can find Oscar's original text at motelamericanapodcast.com. Some have found these to be useful as supplement. A full account of my encounter with Oscar and how I came into possession of his materials can be found in episode one. In episode two, Oscar describes in his own words the circumstances leading up to his peculiar writing process. That is, how he came to write fiction based on real exchanges of those who stayed in his family's motel. If you haven't listened to those first two episodes yet, I do suggest you start there, though it's not entirely necessary as most of the tales are self-contained. And this is the case for the forthcoming story Oscar titled The Double. However, the circumstances around what made this story even possible to share with you bear further notes by way of preface, and as I review these notes, I realize that they run longer than the actual story Oscar had written. So using podcast best practices as my guide, I've decided to release the preface story combination of The Double in two installments. This should keep the running lengths digestible. I thank you for your patience. Now, some of you who have been listening perhaps a little too obsessively to this show might recall a seemingly trivial anecdote in the opening comments of episode 6 involving an impish acquaintance of mine who stole from me the recording of the story Oscar called The Knee. This acquaintance, whom I'll refer to as Ahab Cloud here for reasons I'll soon get to, used that recording as a roadmap of sorts for a no-budget film I happened by chance to catch at a ramshackle film festival one winter night. As incredible as it might seem, my friend Mr. Cloud instructed his fledgling troupe of wet-eyed actors to lip-sync their lines to Oscar's tapes in order to dub the field recordings over their mouthing faces in post-production. I was stunned when I saw this, of course, and somewhat angry. Well, sometime after he disappeared to make his picture, I began receiving postcards from Ahab Cloud. Though we signed none of these postcards, I knew from our days of mopping up cheap beer with our faces that it was his handwriting, and it could only be his. I was an expert in recognizing Cloud's hand, because when I knew him, if nothing else, Mr. Cloud was a writer. And now in this case, I don't mean writer in the wordsmith mystic visionary sense of the word, though he may have been that too in my opinion, but rather I use writer here as a descriptor of a person performing the physical act just as you might describe someone sitting as a sitter in a pinch. Back in our college and immediate post-college days, Ahab wrote anything and everything with indiscriminate ferocity, and he wrote on any surface that provided enough space in which to cram a scrawling. This is my career strategy, he told me one day while committing the Pledge of Allegiance to a cafe window using his girlfriend's black lipstick. 
To be a writer, he said, one must write. So, I write. Simple as that. And I encourage you to do the same, Jack. You know, to get in the habit. Wax on, wax off, etc. and so on. I declined his advice mostly, choosing instead to torture a computer keyboard in my darkest hours. But I did take great pleasure watching Ahab perform his act, particularly when under the influence of hallucinogenic substances. I watched as he wrote assembly instructions for model airplanes on sign-in sheets at doctor's offices. I looked on giggling as he wrote archaic home remedies inside the covers of psalm books. Giggled like a schoolboy as he set down Catholic prayers on the backs of his paltry paychecks before handing them over to confused bank tellers. He wrote complicated shopping lists in the margins of every copy of Finnegan's Wake he could find in every bookstore new and used in the 20-mile radius of our dorm room. He scrawled passages from Heart of Darkness and Black Magic Marker on the skins of kids who passed out at frat parties. Jane Austen quotes on rental agreements. Swedish meatball recipes on sidewalks and chalk. His parents' personal contact information on subway walls. And so on. I interpreted his vaudeville act of mischief as the late bloomer rebellion of a kid who had been hemmed in too closely to his academic work during the angst-ridden high school years when most kids are busy piercing various parts of their faces, driving too fast on suburban side roads, or flirting provocatively with gateway drugs. The unintentional byproduct of the draconian practice of his studies was that when Ahab finally found his college-sized ration of independence, instead of riding a wave of promiscuity or nursing hangovers in Psych 101 lecture halls, he let forth the tidal movements of an overly developed brain flooded with four or five years' worth of AP lit and the privately smuggled ravings of Kerouac and Nietzsche. Mr. Cloud's performance art act of writing was half ironic, half sincere, and 100% lust for life. The point is... We did have keyboards and computers during our college days, so if Mr. Cloud wasn't such a writer in the most perfunctory sense of the word, then I would have had no way of knowing incontrovertibly that it was he who was sending me those postcards. Even knowing Mr. Cloud's capacity for caprice, those postcards baffled me. The fronts all featured pictures of mid-century-ish motels cast in the shimmering colors of Kodachrome daydreams. Establishments featuring giant fiberglass statues of gaudily painted cowboys and rocket ships and Indians and baseball players and dinosaurs and flamingos, all of whom loomed ominously over the parking lots outside their respective lobbies, standing tall against landscapes spanning the American geographical spectrum from Diamond Desert to Gulfstream waters. On the address sides of the postcards were cryptic messages devoid of salutation as well as signature. From the Atlasta Motel in Boonville, Missouri, for instance, Cloud wrote, This just in. In Texas, there was a man so sad he ate his shoe. A strange message indeed to send a somewhat estranged acquaintance you've recently screwed over, I thought. But it only got stranger as more dispatches arrived. The front image of the Mission Auto Court on Route 66 in San Bernardino ensured me that the rooms contained plenty of ice-cold air conditioning. But on the reverse side, Mr. Cloud declared, Fog has been linked to symbolism. From now on, whenever you look at anything through a pale swab of fog, remember, you are not seeing the thing itself. What you see is a representation of an abstract principle. 
A week later, I received a seemingly related message written on the back of a card sent from the Fantasy Motel in East Lyman, Colorado, which, incidentally for those traveling through the area, boasts a heated pool and free HBO. Verbatim, Mr. Cloud's words ran as follows. Specialists predict that the usual palette of abstract categories, i.e. love, grief, time, death, will soon be subdivided to include low-level doubt about one's spouse, mild anxiety caused by notes from one's boss, fear of loss of bandwidth, fear of data, suspicion of the apparently authentic, crippling self-doubt masked by expensive shoes. The advertising industry stands to benefit from this new development, as consumer desires are predicted to multiply incrementally. Hmm. I disregarded these cards as best I could, of course, tried not to think about them, tried to distract myself with day-to-day routines. I knew Cloud well enough to know that any attempt to interpret their implications for me personally, American society in general, or whatever exactly it was that Cloud was implicating, was a fool's errand. Despite my disavowals, however, I continued receiving cards in the mail with no discernible rhyme or reason. Sometimes two or three might come on consecutive days. Sometimes months would pass without word from Cloud's network of motor lodges, and despite my best efforts, I found myself living in a state of free-floating anxiety, wondering when Cloud's next missive might darken my mailbox. On a sub-zero day in February, I received a postal advertisement from the Jackman Station main motel on the back of which Mr. Cloud reported, In a tiny courtroom in Montana, empathy, God's own footpath, has been deemed invasive. The debate over its legality rages on. Jesus Christ. What the hell was Cloud trying to tell me? Even if I had the inclination to do so, I didn't have time to consider it because... The very next day, I received a card from the Mountain Breeze Motel in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. The front image depicted a woman hovering mid-bounce above a diving board wearing Victorian bathing clothes and a white hair cap on her head, about to plunge into what the card claimed to be the best in-ground pool in all the South. I showed this one to my wife in hopes of finding a stabilizing perspective, some small measure of sanity. After reading it, however, she walked out of the house without a word and buried the postcard in the garden next to the arugula. I never asked her why she'd do such a thing, and I continued to refuse to deconstruct Cloud's message for motive. I refused also to consider that Ahab might have shared some past secret with my wife. For the record, employing his unparalleled ability to write in infinitesimal letters, Cloud managed to cram the following into the left side of the divided back of that card. The following words have been trademarked by the Flaming Tiger Greeting Card Company. Love, grace, loss, sorry, life, and time. You may still use these words in everyday conversations, but when writing them, you must include quotation marks and proper citation. Larry Humpwild, the CEO of the company, made the following statement. The new trademarks of these old, nearly meaningless words will reinvigorate the common human experience. The experts suggest that these words will carry a larger emotional impact now that they can be purchased in designer boutiques. The Flaming Tiger Company plans to release more affordable versions to denote less intense expressions of emotion. There is, of course, the risk of counterfeit cards already said to be circulating through the Chinatowns of the nation. Chairman Humpwild despises these fraudulent vendors, stating, Counterfeits could have dangerous psychological implications. Imagine finding out that the 
love you felt was not true love trademark. Imagine that your experience of life, TM, was somehow false. Every second Thursday for the next three months, I received postcards from places where Mr. Cloud was evidently busy losing his mind. From the Madonna Inn in Echo, Utah, he informed me that three men from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, beat each other to death after they admitted that they loved each other. And writing from the Cadillac Motel in Fastoria, Ohio, Cloud reported that a new measurement has been invented to calculate the emptiness felt in the hearts of teenagers who feel that they are somehow responsible for their parents' divorce. This measurement is part of a global effort to calculate exactly how sad and fucked up TM we all are. And from the Silver Saddle in King City, Cloud warned, Salad will kill you more slowly than red meat, increasing the possibility of painful illness or depression due to the loss of friends and family and everything that brought one comfort in the old world. I cracked. I couldn't not question the messages any longer. I became obsessed, in constant fear and longing for the next one to arrive. Why was Ahab writing these things to me? What was his game? My line of reasoning ran along the following lines. I knew Cloud well enough to know that he was fucking with me, of course. People don't change that much. I had by this time seen the film he'd made out of Oscar's knee and the merit of that film notwithstanding. It was clear that he was still a devout practitioner of electric Kool-Aid antics. I tried to satisfy myself with the conclusion that Cloud pictured me reading his insanities in the halls of my domesticity while imagining him rambling footloose and fancy free in the American wilds. And he chuckled. It was nothing more than that. He was getting his kicks. He thought the whole thing was a hoot. The rub is, though, he knew that I would find the prank funny too, which admittedly some part of me did, for Cloud and I shared a sort of wry grin view of the world. But he also knew that I'd have to pretend that I was pissed off about the whole theft incident and that I'd be forced to strike a pose of indignation. How dare he toy with me after stealing my project, and so on. He knew my position was such that I'd have to claim insult to injury, and I'd therefore be forced to suppress my amusement at the postcard trick he was performing. In other words, I'd be caught in what he liked to call a tension envelope. The part of my brain I reserved for paranoia, however, had other ideas. It began to suspect secret messages. It wondered if Cloud embedded the missing links to American conspiracy theories in those words, JFK, Jimmy Hoffa, the moon landing, the creamy richness of Velveeta cheese. Did Cloud have the answers to these mysteries? Was I supposed to act on this information in some way? Long nights passed sleepless. I ran the messages through scores of cryptographic code-breaking systems, some of my own invention, agonizing in the basement of my home for endless hours while my family life suffered. I missed Halloween parades and anniversaries, only to emerge with empty hands and nearly certifiable. I had to accept that the messages contained no code, and shame on me for searching for meaning in a cloud prank. I knew in my heart of hearts that Mr. Cloud's main point is, and always has been, that there is no point. As I stood on the street in front of my house on a late October day, a swirl with beautiful death, I pulled from the mailbox a ghostly image of the motel carousel in Dothan, Alabama, and I could almost hear him saying, the meaning of meaning is its intrinsic meaninglessness. I flipped the card in my hand, almost against my will, and read Mr. Cloud's words aloud to no one at all. For his continuing effect on the erosion of human vanity and pride, the inventor of the whoopee cushion has been canonized 
St. Flatus. It took me longer than I care to admit to begin analyzing the postmarks. When I did, sometime near the end of the cryptographic period, I realized that something was gravely amiss. First, the zip code origins and the imprints next to the stamp killer bars were wildly inconsistent with the locations of the establishments depicted on the fronts of the cards. For instance, that Alabamian postcard was postmarked in Caldwell, Idaho. This cut across the grain of Cloud's penchant for the purity of the prank, which any bedroom critic worth the weight of his own inkless blog knows called for those cars to be sent from at least the general vicinity of their respective motel's geographic points of origin. But, as red flags, the geographical incongruities paled in comparison to the dates of the postmarks. They are out of order, in both senses of the word now. For instance, I received the postcard postmarked March 15th in October, while one dated June 12th came in on June 15th, along with one dated the previous January. On each of these... He wrote a single sentence. Pieced together, the message read as follows. The tiny town of Eatonville, made famous by its principled stand against technology, has reinstated the use of automobiles. According to one local resident, morale has been falling drastically and SAT scores are dropping since the technological holdout. It got kind of sad, the resident said, seeing lines of limping people trying to beat each other to the podiatrist or watching the neighbors carry their dead to the morgue like sacks of potatoes. Moreover, the locations from which the postcards were mailed were impossible given their respective dates. A card from the Fort Henry Motel postmarked in Wheeling, West Virginia, for instance, was dated just one day after the card from the Acropolis Motel postmarked in Antelope, Oregon, locations nearly 2,500 miles apart. This could only be possible if Cloud was operating with an accomplice, or traveling by air, which again would undermine the elegance of Cloud's equation, completely contradicting the open road in an American car type mythologies associated with the institution of the roadside motel. And this, if nothing else, was precisely the literary motif Cloud was riffing on. Anyone else, sure, but not Cloud. Cheating by correspondent or traveling by commercial air to obscure motels in forgotten burgs would go against everything Mr. Cloud stood for a transgression he was incapable of committing. I knew full well that Mr. Cloud's nihilism was absolute when it came to the godheads of religion, politics, economic models, and so on, but I also knew how devout his faith stood when it came to the rules of tricksterism. Mr. Cloud was a zealot of the minor key. These things mattered to him. So now the logistics of the postcards perplex me as much as the messages written on them or the motive behind sending them. I'd gotten nowhere. Strike that. I was moving backwards. And it got worse. Four days after this revelation, an event occurred that threw me into near existential crisis. I received a postcard from the Pelican Spa Motor Court in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, postmarked a week after the day I received it. Unless the postal system had been taken over by time travelers, maniacs, incompetence, or some combination thereof, Something was either terribly wrong or terribly right with the world Cloud was operating in. From his arid perch in that New Mexican desert outside the time-space continuum, Mr. Cloud informed me that Snow, the physical manifestation of silence, continues to plague the Northeast. Deaf-mute snowmen stare at each other across suburban lawns through acorn caps, bottle caps, and in one case, a pair of gold teeth with some blood still clinging to the roots. 
A week later, I received another postcard. This one from a New Jersey motel. A motel, yes, that I'd stayed in once with my family as a child. It read, The majority of each generation is still desperately baffled by mathematics. It was postmarked the same day I received it. If I were to take that postmark at face value, it meant that Cloud was close. Just a three-hour drive down the turnpike. Despite the convolution of the postmarks, or perhaps because of it, I took the chance of accepting it as fact, and without packing a bag, without saying goodbye to my wife and kids, I set off for the Motel Americana to track down my great white whale, Ahab Cloud. You might recall my mentioning that when I first began assembling Oscar's writings and tapes into podcast form, I'd unearth a handful of news articles relating to the Motel Americana and the mysterious disappearance of the tenants and proprietors who happened to be staying at the motel on August 15, 1988, and that the building had been mysteriously razed that same night. I had no reason to doubt the veracity of the reports, and I never bothered to revisit the site to see what was left of it firsthand. But now, I kicked myself for this. Receiving Cloud's postcard from the Motel Americana suggested that he had done his due diligence where I had been lazy. Maybe there was a mistake in the reporting I'd found, or it had been falsified by some internet idiot with nothing better to do than fuck with reality. I moved on, and I found that the prospect of the motel still standing excited me greatly. The process of working so closely with Oscar's stories elevated the motel to magical status in my personal mythology. It had become a dimension unto itself, a place wondrous and terrible, a private place in a public space where love and fear slept beside one another in the same queen-sized bed. The closer I got to it now, I found that the prospect of actually seeing it in its three-dimensional glory was somehow more important than confronting Cloud for his literary theft or postal harassment. But these hopes were immediately dashed as I pulled off the turnpike and into the crumbling parking lot of the former site of the motel. There was no Motel Americana, any more than there's a Shangri-La or a Gartha or El Dorado. Left in place of what was once Oscar's home was nothing more than concrete rubble, bent iron girders, and glass shards that no one had ever bothered to haul away. Feeling colossally stupid for having fallen prey to yet another cloud prank, I sifted through the detritus mindlessly. I managed to unearth some artifacts of lives that may or may not have crossed paths with the motel decades prior, and for reasons I couldn't explain, I loaded these items into my car. A heart-shaped locket, an address book, a high-heeled shoe, a yo-yo, a ticket for a Broadway show that ran in the early 80s, and so on. After the scavenging, there was nothing left for me to do. Nothing to salvage the time I'd wasted contemplating Cloud's nonsense or postmarks or lapses in the natural progression of time. Rush hour bore down upon the land and, not exactly thrilled about the prospect of throwing myself back into the fray of New Jersey traffic, I crossed the street to a strip mall where I planned to pass an hour with a beer and a burger at a place called, I shit you not, Pete DeWitt's End Bar and Grill. This is where serendipity bestowed upon me the gift of my old friend, Ahab Cloud. I was walking in, he was walking out. 
Recognition dawned on his face, and with what sounded like a note of merriment lift in his voice, he said, Jack, buddy. I walloped him in the face. He fell to the asphalt. Crab walking backward and attempting to stem the flow of blood gushing from his nose with a sleeve, he groveled something about explanation. You stole the knee, I growled. I thought it was half a leg, he said. (laughs) Bloody nose and all, he hadn't missed a beat. It was a line from Oscar's story, of course, and it was quintessential clout. I couldn't suppress a grin no matter how hard I tried. He shuffled to his feet and patted me on the back. Besides, I was just borrowing it, he said. I always meant to give it back, old chap. A knee's usefulness lasts only so long. They give out after a while, you know. (sighs) Christ, Cloud. I pulled a bunch of the postcards from my back pocket and shoved them in. Return to sender. Now what the fuck? He shrugged and said, In the antique postcard game now, eh? Okay, how much you want for them? Let's start at two bits a card and go from there. I'll consider only min condition, of course. I have my standards. I flipped them over, confronting him with his own handwriting. He whistled through the nosebud that was now filling the spaces between his teeth. We better go inside and start drinking right away, he said. There's a story you need to hear. Of course there was. Peach feels like a stomach recently evacuated and raw and hungry. Locals start drinking early in the morning and quit early in the evening, not out of any sense of decorum, but because the afternoon has taught them once again that a man can only drink so much without deriving a sense of joy from the drunk. Or maybe they just run out of money. Either way, peach drinkers are day drinkers by blood, and they know intimately the line where impairment edges oblivion. They tiptoe along that high wire, back to beds and small rooms, just in time for primetime TV to hum them to sleep. This was a weekday afternoon, however, so the mood was steady hum. The reassuring account of the Mets' latest unraveling occupied all three television sets above the bar. The cast out of Bukowski chased down well whiskey and watery beer, and Cloud and I raised a glass to old Hank and joined the ritual without hesitation. When Cloud began his tale by saying that he believed that he had been sucked into an interdimensional wormhole, I immediately realized not only how dumb I'd been for hoping for a reasonable explanation about the postcards, but that I never even really wanted one. What bothered me about the postcards most was that I missed Cloud, or not being in on the joke, or maybe who I'd been back when I knew him. Some combination thereof, probably. Listening to him work up a froth of his patented brand of lunacy, I revisited that kid unencumbered by the antithetical feelings of doubt or hauntings of what I may have lost or worse gained in the years since those early days. Witnessing the way Cloud's mind worked, hearing him muse over his carefully constructed insanities, I became that kid again. Full stop. That's who sat across from Cloud at that time-nicked and cigarette-burned scar table, a young man ready for literary adventure. At the same time, Looking out from those kids' eyes, I saw for the first time that Cloud appeared tired. I tried not to think about it, or not to see it, but a hint of frailty played in the movements of his mouth as he snuck the second whiskey in between the words. I couldn't help noticing the eyes set a little deeper, the lines around his mouth a little sharper. He'd grown thinner since I'd last seen him, paler. I wondered if it was just the normal tyrannies of time's agency playing out on him, the punch in the nose I just gave him, or if it was something else. 
something that had to do with what he was saying had happened to him. Cloud told me that after rapping on the last day of film production, he checked out of the Motel Americana and drove to his parents' house to rest and recover. Exhausted in a way that only a no-budget film production can cause exhaustion, he consumed the plate of oatmeal cookies his mom had made for him, washed them down with a giant glass of whole milk, and rolled into the puffy couch in the den just as he'd done so many times when he was in need of safe harbor. When he woke, however, he found himself on a bed, in the shittiest room of the Prairie Winds Motel in a town called Smith Center, Kansas. Which, Cloud noted, happens to be the precise geographical center of the contiguous United States. I bit my lip. Cloud went on. Confused and stricken with horror and panic, Cloud crashed out of that motel room into the assaulting expanse of Kansas blue sky. He spun in the dirt parking lot, dizzy, unwell, disoriented. Shielding his eyes from the alien prairie light, he burst into the lobby, nearly shattering the pane of glass in the door in the process. The woman behind the desk greeted him cheerily. My, you're up early, Mr. Cloud. Raving, Cloud pointed at her and demanded to know the full meaning of all this. She informed them that she had no idea what he meant by that question. After a Bakettian exchange that likely unnerves the woman to this day, she pointed to a name in the register book, scrawled in his own hand. The name read, Ahab Cloud. Confused and chastised, questioning his own sanity, Cloud asked with profound meekness if she knew which way New Jersey was. The woman raised an unsteady hand and pointed with trepidation. Cloud followed it. He set out eastward in his 99 Isuzu I-Mark, which, having also been somehow transported to the prairie winds, stood in the dusty parking lot before Cloud's motel room door. He consoled himself by claiming fatigue hallucinations the entire 20-plus hour drive back to his parents' home in Jersey. And upon re-entering that home, he refused any more oatmeal cookies, milk, or even to discuss his day with his perplexed mother and father. He tried the couch again immediately. Sometime later, he woke up at the Western Star Inn, outside of Rifle, Colorado. According to Cloud, this condition still plagues him. Until this morning, he said, it's never been the same motel twice. Just this week, he said, I've woken up in motels in seven different states across the country. No matter how far he drives, he told me, no matter how long he runs or flies away from the motel he wakes up in on any given day. No matter where he might pass out, he wakes up in some other roadside bed with apparently no rhyme or reason. As he unfolded a map of the continental United States across the table at Pete's, I ran through my pop culture Rolodex where references Cloud might be lacing through his narrative. I said, like Groundhog Day? Except time moves on, he told me. One day here, pointing to a place in northern Florida, the next may be here, his finger jabbed at northern Utah. Or here, the Finger Lakes region. The map looked to be suffering from a case of chickenpox. No, it was a Milky Way of red circles with tiny dates next to each one. All the places I woke up, he told me. All the places on your postcards. I've been to every one of them. And more. His head lowered. So many more, he said. 
but not on purpose. I'm trapped. But I'm real, Cloud told me. You have to believe me, Jack, I exist. For the first time, I heard exhaustion in Cloud's voice. Defeat. It rattled me. I told him to take it easy. It was all going to be all right. He'd try to stay awake, to outrun it. I'd drive across states into or away from the sun four or five at a time, some days caffeine or cocaine addled. I've driven this country backward and forward and in circles and squares and triangles more times than I can count. Idaho and Vegas, gulfs and rivers and mountains, Kansas City, Virginia, barbecue pits on roads leading nowhere, town gatherings, holidays, Christmas in Florida and New Orleans. I've outrun tornadoes, and sometimes I talk to gatherings of sleepless old men at diners at four in the morning about the state of the country. It all forms a single image in my mind, Jack, nebulous, like standing in the middle of a 360-degree movie screen and spinning, the image always changing, always the same. I feel this country the way I feel my childhood, Jack. He told me that one time he didn't leave a room for a week straight. He didn't move. But the room around him and the landscape outside the window changed with every new sun's dawning. He had no idea what state he was in on any given day. He makes his living by writing, he told me. Of course. That's the easy part, he said. He fires out articles about pets and shampoo, weather and shoes, anything you can buy, really. I review movies and music and food. I don't need much, he told me. My board is always paid for. So whatever pennies they toss my way is generally enough. I write uplifting motivational blog articles filled with every platitude you can think of. Political opinions for both sides, ad copy, you name it. Anonymous posts for online reputation outfits. It's a sea of words out there and I'm a Neptune. It's awful. But if I had to pinpoint the worst thing about the whole thing, he said, I don't think it would be that or the brown water coming from the faucets or the paper walls moaning in horrible pantomime of pleasure or even the bed bugs. You know what the worst part is? It's that I don't dream anymore. You understand what that means? Not once since this whole goddamn tilt started a whirl. I haven't had a single dream. He looked in my eyes, and in a voice I'd never heard, he asked me, What's a man that doesn't dream, Jack? Maybe I'm not alive, or not really living. That's what I'm afraid of. Something like that, he said. That's what I used to think on those early drives, those early days when the sun just kept coming up. Then one day, I don't know where it was exactly, in Mississippi somewhere, I'm standing under a leaky awning outside the lobby of whatever motel it was, raining only the way Mississippi rains. A couple of kids pull into the parking lot, everything they owned packed into the back of a pickup. Maybe they're 20, from Maine or New Hampshire, full of that thing, you remember it? That thing that deflects bullets off your chest? laughing at the soaking they got running across the lot to the lobby. They stood there under the awning with me a minute, sluicing water from their skin. Where are you guys headed, I asked. The one kid looks at me. The bright gray sky sprawled across his eyes in a half grin and waved his hand across the rain and the road and everything else that was under his fingers. Why, to find the American dream, sir. How about you, the other kid asked. And I said my line the way I'm supposed to say it. The wizened ex-tipster who hasn't quite fully surrendered to the death throes of monitoring his 401k. Me, I said. I found the American dream a few miles back. 
I can't tell you what she told me, but I'm done with her. She said she's looking for you fellas now. They got a kick out of that like they were supposed to and went into the lobby to do their thing, which, if I remember the role correctly, was to harass the desk clerk without her realizing she was being harassed. But the exchange got me thinking that maybe that's why I wasn't dreaming, because I was living in a waking dream. Cloud's eyes unfocused. He stared out to something past me, past the bar surrounding us. And motels, he said. They're right up there with DiMaggio and Jazz and astronauts and nuclear bombs as far as the American dream goes. What else could my dream be but the American dream? Where else could an American dream be dreamt but in a motel room by a guy so lost it doesn't matter how hard he tries, he can't get to where he wants to go because he can't get anywhere. Not of his own free will. Free will. If I never believed in such a thing as free will, I wish I did, because a man realizing he doesn't have it is a hell of a way to get the stiff punched out of his upper lip. I walked out from that awning and into the rain and stood in it thinking she'd give you two choices this American dream. You either give up and let the world have its way with you and sit down and wait around to die while the sun keeps going down and down and down and down. Or you run and you run and you run and you never get anywhere. Which is more like a nightmare than a dream, ain't it Jack? But there's another way to look at it. At some point on a morning soon after that rain, when I forgot to care who I was supposed to be, I looked out my window and caught the rising sun crossing a thousand miles of red rock sand to fill my room with angels. Or maybe I was looking at a pine forest sobbing the dew of ancient gods. Or a city piled on the stoned hopes of a thousand generations of breaking men. A ravenous sea alight with the infinite glimmerings of the smug and the immune. Whatever it was, all of it maybe, through that motel window I saw everything America is and isn't in a moment that could have lasted the span of a breath or a decade. I'm no Bill Murray, Jack. I'm Tom Jode. He pointed again at the map. There and there and there, he said. That's the American dream. Horatio Alger was a sick, sick man. The riches we make of our rags is just a convenient way of quantifying the distractions we construct to keep us from taking a cold, hard look at the dream. The dream where we're looking around for a better place to call home. A better place to call home. Looking forever for it. Cloud stopped talking. It all sounded crazy to me. He was drunk and not himself. We both were. Or weren't. Peach was empty. Truly empty now and I'd had enough. He read all this in my face and got up from the table. He folded the map drunkenly into his pocket. Where are you going, I asked. To sleep it off, he said. It's too late to solve anything now. When I woke up the next morning, I was in my car. I had a dim recollection of following Cloud out of the bar and across the street to the Motel Americana, where it stood proud and beautiful under the neon sign declaring vacancy. I was somehow not surprised by this. I vaguely remember following Cloud into room 101 as if in a dream. He yammered incoherently for a while, swearing at one point that he hadn't written those postcards, hadn't sent them, had never seen them before that night. I swear to you, Jack, it wasn't me. I know it's my handwriting. 
just like it's written in God knows how many register books. I don't know what to tell you about that, but some nights, some nights when I wake up in wherever USA, I see a kid standing in the corner of the room in the shadows, in the mirror. Sometimes I hear him mumbling things as he scratches his pencil into a composition notebook. Strange messages I try to grab a hold of, but can't as my dreamless sleep pulls me back down. I planned to make it to the lobby to look around after Cloud passed out, but I must have fallen asleep before him. How I woke up in my car, I can't say. The motel was gone again, of course, reduced to its pile of rubble, and Cloud was nowhere. Beside me on the passenger seat, however, was a notebook and audio tapes, the ones Cloud had stolen from me that, I found out, contained not just the knee, but a whole pile of Oscar stories. One of which, the double, can be found in your feed in the coming days. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. Big shout out and special thanks to Motel Americana's newest and first Patreon supporter, Kim Petrosky. Knowing folks like Kim are listening and enjoying the show literally is the encouragement podcasts like this need to carry on. If anyone else out there is also enjoying the show, please consider supporting it by reviewing it on your favorite podcast platform. That's free. You can also go to motelamericanapodcast.com and click support or search for us on Patreon. The support process takes less than two minutes. And of course, you can donate however much or little you're comfortable with. And rest assured, every cent that's donated goes directly to improving the quality of the show for you, the listener. It will help get the resources needed to improve audio quality, expand the show's infrastructure and reach, as well as allow me to integrate Oscar's original audio surveillance recordings into the stories. All said and done, it'll make for a better audio experience for you, the listener, and really, that's the ultimate goal here, to tell a good story. So again, please click the support button at motelamericanapodcast.com, search for the show on Patreon, or just review it on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening again, and for checking in to the odd and lovely rooms of the Motel Americana.